0: Hello, Next Picture Show listeners. Here's a friendly reminder that if you enjoy the Next Picture Show, you'll really enjoy getting more Next Picture Show by subscribing to our Patreon. You can unlock ad-free versions of the podcast for $3 a month and get bonus episodes on current TV, movies that we don't cover on the podcast, and other topics for $5 a month. We're currently planning a bonus episode for the season and series wrap of Reservation Dogs, a show we've all loved from the start. And there's more to come. To subscribe to our Patreon, please visit patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. show Show difficult to keep the line between the past and the
1: present. You believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is
0: not through with us. Welcome to The Next Picture Show, a Movie of the Week podcast devoted to a classic film and how it's shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Tasha Robinson, here with
2: Scott Tobias and Keith Phipps.
0: We often take a pretty wry or comedic approach to the introduction to this podcast, including making funny jokes about why a particular co-host is absent. This week, we will just say uh, Genevieve is out sick. We're not going to be flipping about it, uh, because this week it would be not only difficult to do that, but pretty inappropriate, given that we're looking at a couple of movies that sprung from real-world oppression and atrocity. Uh, I'm curious whether you two approached this pairing any differently from uh, you know, the, the various far more fictional and perhaps less fraught movies that we do. I mean, I certainly did.
2: Obviously, we're dealing with some heavy, heavy subject matter here, but I think both films kind of find a way to turn that into I, I, entertainment feels like the wrong word but it, it turned it into like an engaging filmmaking that it's not just about the awfulness of the subject matter
1: yeah he kind of approaches pinochet from an odd place that, that aestheticizes it uh, in a way uh that makes both of them quite palatable so so but but i'm curious uh you said that it, it messed you up a little bit tasha why, why is that
0: Oh, no, it's not that it messed me up a little bit. I just feel like I did a lot more sort of historical labor trying to understand the issues at play. The movies themselves do, are doing some fairly complicated things, uh, especially with symbolism and with history. And I wanted as much as possible to make sure I understood the both the perspectives being offered and... And more importantly, these movies are kind of wry in a certain way, and it's very hard to understand another's culture's jokes unless you either have someone explaining them or have a pretty good foot in where they're coming from. But we're putting the card a little bit above for the horse here. Uh, Keith, you want to fill everybody in on what we're actually talking about this week? Sure. Augusto Pinochet ruled
2: Chile as a dictator for nearly 20 years and he left behind a complicated legacy, both a seemingly endless list of crimes ranging from financial fraud to torture and murder, and a fervent fandom who believe he saved Chile from its enemies. Chilean director Pablo Lorraine, most recently known for his unconventional biopics Jackie and Spencer, seems to have been contending with Pinochet's long shadow all his life. And this week we're looking at two of the movies that address the man and his effect on the people and institutions around him. Lorraine's 2012 film, No, is a fictionalized and at times wryly comedic look at the lead-up to the 1988 vote that led to the new constitution, as an ad man played by Lorraine favorite Gael Garcia Bernal tries to figure out how to sell democracy to the Chilean public, in spite of their entirely understandable wariness that the entire vote might be a government trap to catch malcontents. Lorraine's new Netflix movie, El Conde, deals with Pinochet in both a more personal and more fantastical way, envisioning him as a literal vampire well into his third century of life and hoping for death, while his family and other hangers-on hungrily debate his legacy, their inheritance, and whether the old bloodsucker really does want to die after all.
0: So this week, we'll start with the rich complications of trust, hope, and dealing with the public in the midst of Pinochet's Chile in No. And next week, we'll jump into the equally rich complications of a fantastical metaphor that digs much more into Pinochet as a person and as a monster, while focusing just as much on the effect he has on people around him.
2: Hay que ser más creativos, carajo. Hay que darle
0: la vuelta a esto. A mí la democracia me parece entretenida. Un producto alegre si tú lo planteas, ¿sí? Estamos utilizando un lenguaje publicitario, pero armando un concepto político detrás. Porque sin la dictadura la alegría va a llegar. Vamos a decir que no. ¿Qué chucha hace un mimo en medio de mi película? Early in Pablo Lorraine's no, a smugly cynical government representative tells a boardroom full of his counterparts exactly how they're going to manipulate the Chilean public into voting against their own freedom and self-determination and keep ruthless military dictator Augusto Pinochet in power. The answer, he says, is to convince them to focus on the growth of the economy under Pinochet and imagine the possibilities it might bring them and the threat of socialism taking over the country if their beloved general doesn't protect them. Instead of socialism, the man says, the government will promise them a system where anyone could become rich. Careful, he reminds them, not everyone, anyone. You can't lose when everyone is betting on being that anyone. Like so many things in No, that moment is set in a very specific time and place, and yet it feels universal, like a window into every cynical meeting room where every politically savvy operator outlines how much you can get the public to lie down and accept, if they believe they might personally profit from it someday. There's a lot of this kind of observation in No, even though it's telling a story that's so tremendously grounded in one country's mindset at one particular moment. Let's take a look at exactly what that mindset was. Augusto Pinochet ruled Chile as a dictator from 1973, when a military coup took over the country, to 1990, when a new constitution led to democratic elections in the country. That constitution emerged after a 1988 plebiscite, a non-binding vote advising the government on the will of the people, a very different thing from either a referendum, which could actually change laws, or an election, which could bring a specific person into power. The plebiscite came about through international pressure for Pinochet to legitimize his government, and as with any election that takes place under a dictatorship, there are endless questions around whether it would be fair and impartial, whether it could actually bring legitimate change, and particularly whether people trying to vote would be in danger. Inner chilean director Pablo Lorraine, who was born three years into Pinochet's rule and would have been around 12 or 13 at the time of the vote. Growing up at the son of two politicians, he lived in an environment where Pinochet had always been in charge of the country. Pinochet's rule was marked by endless human rights violations, vocally aimed at leftists and socialists, and less openly aimed at critics and protesters. Under his leadership, tens of thousands of people were interred, tortured, and executed. Thousands more simply went missing. At the same time, typically enough for any long-standing dictator, he amassed a fervent following of people who praised how he'd kept Chile from falling to communism, how he brought economic growth, modernization, and free markets to Chile. Granted, his policies led to huge profits for some and widespread poverty for others. He was a wildly divisive figure in his country, and he still is to this day. So it's understandable, as Lorraine captures throughout No, that the plebiscite vote stirs up a great deal of conflicting and contradictory emotions and is met by the public with a jaundiced eye and a nervous shudder. Lorraine finds a particularly interesting perspective on all of it. Leading up to the vote, both sides in the plebiscite, the yes, keeping a Shan power side, and the no-give-us-free-elections side are given 15 minutes a day to air ads and information on television, selling their side to the public. The yes-for-Pinochet side sells him as the doting, paternal, protective father of the nation, appealing to the country's patriotism and conservatism. The no side that gives the movie its title, well, they aren't decided on how to approach the issue. Many of the reported 17 different political groups that fall under the no banner have differing opinions and agendas. And many of them want to air ads highlighting Pinochet's history of murder and brutality and the poverty and inequality plaguing the nation. Adman René Saverdra, tapped to run the No TV campaign, has a different idea in mind. He wants to bring the most modern advertising techniques possible to bear and sell his people on hope, freedom, and positivity. It helps to keep in mind while watching No that the ad campaign, as strange and fanciful as it might seem now, is archival footage from the actual 1988 campaign. Lorraine is certainly condensing and simplifying history and perspective, as historical pictures inevitably do, but he's doing it to frame where that ad campaign came from and explain why it was so successful. Not necessarily as much of a focal point in the triumph of the no vote as the movie might make it seem, but certainly representative of the different strains of political thought and marketing thought of the time. But while the ad campaign and Renee's experience as someone caught in the thick of the debate gets the central attention and know, what the movie is really revealing is the complexity of the situation at hand. How do you fight an entrenched power that can censor its critics and that so thoroughly compromise the media that nobody is likely to trust what they see or hear on TV? How do you motivate a voting public that's turned cynical, sour, and paranoid and doesn't think their votes really matter or have any power to enact change? How do you get a squabbling party with endless different agendas to work together against a common threat? And above all, how does someone like Rene, who's noticeably quiet, withdrawn, and averse to confrontation, find the courage to step up and take a stand, given how dangerous that could be for him? Strangely enough, while everything about no is focused on this one vote in this one country decades back, it feels like it's speaking to us directly today, and every country dealing with the threat of authoritarianism, with entrenched and corrupt powers, and with a strained and overstretched media. Watching no, we're watching history. We're also watching our own future.
1: Oye, pero tú sabes que yo no hago eso. No, no, no entiendo. No hago eso. Lo he hecho mil
2: veces. No sé. Llámate un rockero, un folclorista, la persona que te ha conmigo. No.
1: Well, bueno, yo quiero un jingle. Sin arte
0: sin folclore, sin pop, sin rock, jingle. So let's start with the look of this film. Uh, Pablo Lorraine incorporated a lot of like real archival footage from the actual No Ad campaign and uh, from from news events in Chile, from uh, the police beating protesters and so forth. So he ended up shooting the entire film on effectively the the equivalent of like TV newsreel stock. So the whole film kind of has this grainy like tv news of the 1980s look to it which i took at face value until i started reading about the production of this movie you know i'm, I'm i guess i'm just used to watching uh, 80s films like on vhs tapes uh from from rentals and it just did not occur to me to wonder at how kind of like rough and fuzzy and, and granulated this movie looks not in a bad way but in a in a like stylistic choice way so i'm I'm curious how this visual style kind of like kind of worked for you how you engaged with it so I first saw this movie in
2: the theater and mm-hmm. i the, it's even more striking there because it's so far removed from what you expect a movie to look like and i mean it's it's not pretty i mean it's not an easy it's not a fun movie to look at in, in many ways it's kind of almost like you're watching a home home movie in times but it is very much sort of you know 80s videotape stock but i think it's a smart choice i actually i i ended up I, I liked it. I thought he did you know he's making makes a virtue of, of the portability and the handheld uh, elements to it too and I think there's some fun playing with it too like you know he, they just kind of lean into a way some of the uh, some of the light just blows out the the frame and and, and uh, uh, you know the focus is not always that sharp and or and takes a moment to come into focus. I mean I, I, I thought it was a, I thought it was a choice that, that paid off even if it's not as silly easy on the eyes at times. Yeah, I would have wanted to see this. I,
1: I, I, Confession here, I did not see this until now. Uh, even though uh, it had, obviously, a, a, a big rep at the time, uh, made many lists. And to my shame, I did not catch it, even though I've seen plenty of Lorraine films since. And I kind of weirdly regret not being able to see it on the big screen, just to kind of get the effect of how bad it looks, I guess. Uh, how mm-hmm. deliberately crummy it looks as i would think that that um you know at the time this would have been released we're, st- we're still seeing things were on film right i mean this would still be was this we, we, we were we hadn't converted to digital you know, it's at this point
2: 2012 it's pretty far along in that process even if not every theater is but but i mean you know digital video even the crummiest one does has a different look from this too
1: but i'm just saying like on film the resolution would be even worse than oh it would right. be on, on yeah. digital video so i mean i feel i feel like in a way seeing it as i did you know at home on my computer monitor basically it did not strike me as um too uh rough an experience i mean i just i understood appreciate i suppose the aesthetic purpose of it uh and how it situates us in that time how it how it uh, has the feel of some of those commercials that got broadcast it kind of has that broadcast quality it, it the look of the film contributes to it as a period piece as much as any piece of decor or anything else on the screen so i, I thought that was pretty great and i, and I also think uh, he doesn't lean into it too much, which I appreciate because I think there is a temptation that if you're shooting in this style, you know, and you're making this radical decision that you're really going to like, as you say, lean into it, but he doesn't do it. It reminds me a little bit of uh computer chess, the, the, mm-hmm. the Andrew Bajowski film that was also shot using this even more ancient, uh, <laughs> video equipment. And, um, you know, again, you know, to, to a purpose and, and you know, and when you kind of come up with this, conceit it all sort of comes together really w- well i think so i but tasha i was curious you said you you re- you had your thoughts on it and then you did a little bit of research into the production like what, what did you find in that research
0: well mostly that like the kind of the number one consideration here was in showing us uh what the ads actually looked like he didn't want them to stand out like a sore thumb like he didn't want them he felt that it would look very unrealistic effectively to have a like a sharp crisp modern look to the movie and then have everybody gather around this TV set and watch something that looked like it came off an old uh, an old battered VHS tape so he wanted the whole movie to be consistent to these archival footage moments, which I just I find fascinating, so many people who use archival footage use it, it like the contrast between it and the the frame sort of fictionalized uh, footage as an indicator. Like, by the way, this this is real. You're watching something real here, and it's you know if if you if you watch a movie that frames like the the Rodney King uh, beating, for instance the roughness of that footage is often used to indicate like, hey, this is the real thing. Like, this isn't something that I made up. Like, you're in a very immediate moment here. And I mean, one of the things I was, I had to immediately go research was just, is this an actual ad or is this a fictionalization, a dramatization, an exaggeration? And it's not. And that's really, really important to the story here, I think, and and to how we're meant to take it. But you said that you don't feel he leans into the aesthetic. I I really think he does. I I just noticed very early on how much handheld uh, camera there is in this. How much the camera like it's not steady cam, You know, it, it bobs and and weaves and Maybe moves just around. Distracting.
2: Did, I didn't. think, I, it was I think we're just. I
0: think we're just
2: using the the term differently. I think you mean you're saying he doesn't do it in a gimmicky way. Whereas I are saying doesn't
1: feel like experimental. It just seems like right. he's got he has a he has kind of this idea of uh, of the. Way way he wants the film to look and maybe the handheld part of it is the handheld is kind of part of that but it doesn't like he doesn't try to muck it up any more than that i mean like like something like there's like
2: tracking marks or Or, or, (laughs) even what
1: even what soderbergh did with full frontal which which was much more of like okay i've got this incredibly limited camera so i'm just gonna like show off how limited it is i'm not going to even try to make it look like a regular film and uh and here it's more just like i have this conceit that i'm going to apply in a very consistent way throughout the
2: whole movie and that's why full frontal is steven soderbergh's most beloved <laughs> and successful film
0: and memorable yeah you make a really good point you make a really good point keith that uh, you know th- this isn't like vhs 85 like there are there aren't tracking or static on the corners or scratch lines or anything like that. But uh, my my point with the handheld camera was just between that and the uh, you know the the rough newsy looking footage like this isn't a mockumentary it it isn't being presented in mockumentary style but it actually kind of feels more like an actual vintage documentary than a lot of mockumentaries do because it's not stylized and fakey. It just it does kind of have that feeling at times of somebody with a news camera following Renee around, like, capturing the moment. There's a lot of a room full of people and somebody starts talking and the camera, like, zip pans in on them as if it was being captured by a documentarian in the room. And I've just, I found that style very conscious, uh, but pretty immediate and pretty grabby just when it comes to something that could be very bloodless, you know, you've got a lot of of scenes of like people in rooms arguing about marketing philosophy and how to how to engage their passionate uh, experiences Which they present a very, like, dry political debate kind of tone. So making it so immediate in terms of, like, the camera work and the cinematography, I think, is just a way of, like, adding immediacy and verisimilitude in a way I thought was pretty cool. All that said, it apparently the style hurt the movie's uh, Oscar chances. At least that was the theory. This movie was nominated for uh, Best Foreign Feature. It was a huge breakout for Lorraine. It got him a ton of international attention, uh, even though apparently it came up for a lot of criticism in in Chile, which, you know, kind of makes sense. It's a a little bit of a uh, a no profit has respect in his home country kind of deal. People complained Mm -hmm. that, you know, he simplified the real politics and this may not be a story that was like intimately known outside of the country. So I think as, as foreigners, maybe it's easier to approach as like an insider's look. Uh, to a degree that it was not as easy for insiders who had lived through this history. And
1: he was a kid when this, I mean, when all of this was going on, I mean, he was, uh, he would have been like 12 or something. He like was that.
0: 12, but his parents were, uh, I'm, as I mentioned in the keynote, uh, he was 12, but his parents were politicians. I, I suspect even though I haven't read anything direct from him in interviews about that, at least as of yet, I'm going to keep digging. Cause I found this story fascinating. I, I strongly suspect it was just in his home and was like a very uh, prominent part of the environment he was growing up in, more so than you would maybe suspect from the average twelve-year-old in terms of like political awareness. So, Tasha, let me ask you this:
1: two two questions. One is this the first time you've seen No, and and also, what did you think of No?
0: Yes, it is, and man, I I don't know if I am glad I didn't see it in a theater or not. I paused this movie so many times to just take in things. There's so many layers. There's so much going on. And there were so many moments where I thought, I don't feel like I have the context to properly understand what he's doing. And because there's so much going on, and I'm not even talking about, like, narrative events. We're going to talk about this again when El Conde uh, shows up for the pairing. There's so much at work in terms here of what people say versus what they mean, what people do versus what they think, what people do and think versus what they think other people should do and think. It's just, it's a lot. It's This is maybe one of the most conceptually dense movies I've ever encountered that isn't Charlie Coffin being arch and silly. Hmm. And and not silly, I know, I mean, he he takes his stuff very, very seriously. But just in terms of things to unpack, I just felt like every scene was either a political or personal education in some ways. I I think this movie is fascinating, but I also think if I'd watched it in a theater, I would have come out maybe like reeling from that final scene and not thinking nearly as much about the rich dynamics of the earlier scenes. And because I kept stopping doing some research and then coming back to it. Not the best way to experience a movie. I don't, <laughs> I don't advise it. Say. But still, well, I mean, I created my own pop-up video experience. <laughs> um, but just still really useful in terms of unpacking a, just a movie that is so full of ideas. I really enjoyed No! a lot. I, I think it's fascinating.
1: Yeah, I, I had kind of the same experience, because I mean, this was my first go with it as well. And I, I was kind of blown away. I, you know, And I've liked the Lorraine films that I seen pretty consistently but I I think I think and I'm of course we'll get to him in a bit here but I think Renee is such an interesting lead character his it, because of what interests him and how it contrasts so sharply with the what's at stake and what what is being like just the, the idea of approaching something of such incredible historic and national import being considered by someone who thinks about it as a product and thinks about selling things and 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 really has a different idea of what all of this means than than the people who are really behind the campaign for for now who are who are so engaged in in the atrocities of under uh pinochet under so engaged in activism and, and you know and of course that's not the approach that renee wants to take at all in terms of in terms of trying to you know sell uh note that to uh to others i saw so i fi- find that i think that i think the angle into this story and this happens too with El Conde as well like the like, like conceptually this film is very smart in fact just in, in endlessly fascinating in ter- terms of also just like the advertising aesthetics and how how things gets gets sold and and uh it's yeah it's a really really good movie
2: yeah and like from from the from the start to where you see you know he's pitching What's the phrase he uses for every pitch? It's like this is consistent with contemporary social context or something like that. And And, and Chile is looking to its future. Yeah, right, right. And and then you see these ads, like you, you, we're we're all we were all um, alive uh, during when watching TV ads during this time. It's like such a trip back to that aesthetic, to that like sort of Pepsi, you know, or whatever. They all kind of had that same kind of look to it. That sort of glossy, just the way that people are 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 lighted and the somewhat random assemblage of images because i i I love early on when they the running gag where someone points out why is there a mime in this and then he slips a mime into every single ad that we see almost but you know it's it's an example of how this funny this film is you know it's funny i mean it it is it is you know the weightiest matters possible in terms of of politics but uh uh but it really you know watching it from this perspective it it, it's it's can be quite entertaining as well
0: I, we're going to dig into Renee, as you mentioned, but it's something else that you kind of uh, glided across that I, I want to dive into a little bit more, Scott, because uh, I don't have an answer for this one. I'm just curious where you see the Pablo Lorraine of Jackie and Spencer in this movie. Like, I have not, I still have not seen Spencer. Uh, I've read a lot about it and like I've seen clips from it, so I, I, I at least know something about the aesthetic. It's of a piece of Jackie. Movie, yeah, yeah, that movie oh, and absolutely. Jackie are both... Just could not be more stylistically different from this in terms of the glossiness and the the approach and the kind of uh, maybe maybe there's something in all three of them in terms of the way they emotionally like get physically close to the protagonist in order to get emotionally close to the protagonist.
1: Yeah, that part is for sure a connection with those two movies is is the the closeness. I mean, just literally a lot of close ups. You're also dealing with a lot of behind the scenes you know speculation basically a lot of a lot of things i mean you know i mean i guess jackie jackie's day was a a a fairly public day but even there then you get some private moments and uh and then you get a sense of, of a lot a lot of behind the scenes machinations that lorraine kind of frees himself to a degree to kind of speculate on so there's that. And I, I just think I think the intimacy, the focus on on the intense focus on one character. I mean, I think you know No gets a little bit go, goes a little bit more outside the scope than Jackie and Spencer. Jackie and Spencer are just really wholly focused on the experiences of their protagonists. And this is there's a you get a, you get away from Renee. A little bit in this movie you get Mm -hmm. you get you get the other side and you know you you get uh, a little bit you follow his boss to the yes campaign too which is oh god that see that part is so great too um and they could have just switched places just as easily anyway so there's there's some differences there but i think i think we can also see you know lorraine's a pretty deep political thinker i I think i mean i I think he's you know I, i think he's somebody who's he's a serious filmmaker but he's also uh uh someone who who's really good about coming up with strong you know, aesthetic conceits to kind of support, you know, the ideas that he wants to get across.
2: Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's funny. I, I, it's not that I had entirely forgotten that Lorraine directed this, but I, it took me a moment to, con- you know, I, I, saw this film and then, you know, Jackie had time passed and I know I looked it up at the time, but like, you know, I, I find it stylistically so removed from Jackie and Spencer that it was a little, uh, it, it, I had to remind myself that he directed this one. Although I think thematically and, and, and you know, in, in, in that intensity you're talking about that the tense focus, they are very much of, of a piece, but there's art to this, what he's doing. But, you know, Jackie and and, and, and Spencer um, are much more, you know, composed and every, every shot is is very mm-hmm. m- meticulous, whereas this is quite the opposite.
0: Yeah, it, I guess thinking about it, both the, the two films we're discussing in this pairing and Jackie and Spencer, and possibly this is true of films of his that I haven't seen, maybe aren't so much engaged with the central famous political figure as the people around them. It's something that I find myself thinking about a lot around Ilconde. And I here it's much more definitionally true. Like we're not spending much time with with Pinochet himself or mm. what he thinks or what he does. We're we're looking at kind of the, the cloud of people that he leaves in his wake, the political system that exists to support him, the political system that's been impacted by him and is pushing forward against him. Maybe there's a resonance there in terms of Jackie and Spencer both being about the people potentially at least closest to, possibly physically, if not always emotionally, uh, you know, some some very powerful men. And this is another case of, you know, instead of looking, looking directly into the sun, kind of looking at the corona around it uh, and the, the meteor impact that it left behind. But we've mentioned that we were going to get to Renee, and I I definitely want to dig into this, because I, man, I really spent a lot of this movie questioning, what does this man really believe, or why is he really doing this? It just, it seems so significant, that shot that we see of him early in the movie, where he goes down to the police station to meet his estranged wife, and like a a scuffle breaks out and he just backs up. Like there are other people present fighting against the police who are just unquestionably beating uh, their, the, the protesters who they have, you know, handcuffed and helpless because they're sort of pretending that they're trying to like quell uh, an uprising, but they're really just being, you know, vindictive and power, powerful and violent. And Renee is, Impulse is to like back up with his hands up against the wall, and I think you're you're meant to question throughout this movie. Like, where does he find the courage to do something that he knows is putting him in the spotlight, that he knows is putting him in danger, or does he accept that that's true? Does he, you know, is is he just doing the thing that he does and that he does well? I don't know. What what do you uh, make of Rene as a character?
1: See, I I I was reading uh, Manola Dardis' review of. No, and I have to quote her on him because I think it's just—I think it's so good. I don't know. If, I think maybe we can build on it, but it can't be topped. But this is what she has to say about Rene. As an advertising whiz, he embodies a consumer society in which everything, democracy, freedom in itself, is for sale. Rene helps the no activists wage war against one type of dictatorship, but an argument can be made that he represents another kind of tyranny, one in which freedom is reduced to freedom of consumer choice. Pretty damn good, I gotta say. This is a pretty good read on who he who he is, which is interesting. I mean, like he to the extent that he is, you know, an, an ideologue. It is for it has to do with capitalism, with with buying and selling, with with ads, with with what his job is. I mean, that's what what makes his approach to this subject so potent is because is because he can step away from any passion he might have about you know the atrocities of. Uh, this dictatorship and try to understand what he can sell people on what about democracy and, and freedom and what th- what about the no campaign as a product you know and, and i think that's a that's such a unique vantage that he has and 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 it, and it gives the no campaign a, a direction that it wouldn't have
2: had otherwise uh, yeah i understand that people get people kind of tune out, there's sort of a, you know, atrocity overload at a certain point, even, even, know if it's your own country they're talking about, you can, you can kind of uh, ignore it. And I think another, another thing I liked about this film is how it captured, you know, the, the people who were suffering were, were suffering horribly, but for a lot of people in the country, they weren't touched by that directly. And they were worried about giving up their own sort of stability and, and comfort and, you know, no, I don't think anyone would want to admit this out loud. But how they benefit it from from the Pinochet dictatorship, even if it's the expense of, of their own ideals and morals. So to to push past that in some way to this to present democracy as a superior product is is quite the challenge.
0: Yeah, but then the the point of the movie where Renee just outright says like, "Yeah, that's all true, but you're not going to sell people on it," mm-hmm. you know yes, people are are in poverty. Yes, people are suffering, but people don't want to hear that. It's like he's in direct opposition uh, to the the man we see in the boardroom telling everybody that, you know, what they're selling is the fantasy that anybody can become rich, which just sounds really familiar. The whole idea of we're going to find a, a palatable way to market freedom and and choice and democracy in a way that people will actually vote for it is it's a terrifyingly cynical idea that is all, at the same time almost funny it's so dark and yet it's it's presented here in just like an eminently practical of course this is this, this is the truth kind of way like Of course, people don't care about, you know, your brother who disappeared into a black cell and was probably tortured to death. What they care about is this unnamed person frolicking through a field in like a a gauzy music backed uh, scene that does not attach to anything and has a jingle associated with it. Like, that's just a very hard message to hear, I think. And one of the things I really like about No, I think, is that it's aware just how hard a message that is to hear, and it's it's also telling you ah, nonetheless it it doesn't matter. It's true, and we have historical proof.
1: Yeah, I mean, and that's when and that's when the bell really rings. You know, for me anyway, as a as an American living in twenty twenty three and anticipating another election year, it's just like, all right. I think we the progressive minded, politically aware you know trump hating people like you can see see the idea of of a trump election as being you know the end of democracy basically or something so a a deep and terrible threat to the, the the country right right at its foundations but it's like that's not necessarily the way the campaign is going to work. The campaign ends up working on things like how much is what, what what's the price of the pump and what's inf- what, what's what's the employment rate? What's what what's in, what's inflation like? But what about my gas stove? I don't, what about my gas? Right, I mean it's utterly it's it is terrifying to consider like that these matters of principle, these things that are so much more important to the life of a country, to a to the just the state of a democracy become the in terms of a political campaign and, and the way candidates are sold, you know, less of an issue, you know, less potent, like, you know, so if you, if you, you know, cause you, you could do all kinds of kinds of advertising that, that montages all of the, you know, atrocious anti-human things that, that Trump did as president. I don't know if that's going to win you the election. You know, and, and I think I mean that's kind of where you see, where you see no coming from. So we 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 might be of the mind of the of of the grassroots no activists who who really want to emphasize, you know, uh all of these disappearances and murders and and terrible things that happened. But, you know, Renee has that ability to kind of see things differently and it's it's both a it's both assuring in the sense that it, it is a good strategy is an effective strategy but it's also quite disturbing that, mm-hmm. that that it becomes a battle of of campaigns and it ends up selling things that are not really central to to, to why you, sh- you would want to vote no.
0: Yeah, it just it feels very insightful about the, some things that, you know, we do see in politics all the time, like going back decades, we see things like the Willie Horton ad, you know, it are very effective in changing the electorate's mind. But at the same time, people say they don't want negative ads, but they respond to them at the same time you know a like highlighting some of the things that a an incumbent politician or a past politician have done is going to be seen by a, a big chunk of the electorate as like oh they're going negative this is a smear campaign regardless of whether it's true uh you know regardless of whether true things are being highlighted and the the message here of you have to swallow your outrage you have to swallow your passion you have to swallow like your own history and, and your own agony in order to win. You have to think about politics in the most like bloodless, manipulative way possible. Just explain so much of politics. And it all rings very true while being presented in a way that, to me at least, doesn't feel didactic or preachy, which is a difficult thing to achieve in a, a political story. Keith, you had something you were uh, going to yeah. jump in.
2: Oh, no. I just want to say that this movie plays plays differently for me now than when I saw it 10 years ago. Uh, you were a, in a country that's precariously on the edge of, of losing sight of, of democratic principles. Uh, it's um, chilling in a way that it wasn't uh, before.
0: So... We keep seeing echoes of our, our present in this story, but at the same time, uh, Lorraine does set it in a very specific time. And, and one of the big kind of signifiers in this movie is the microwave.
2: Mm-hmm. <laughs>
0: we get to see like Renee's first experiences with a microwave and he's like poking at us kind of soggy looking uh, grilled cheese sandwich with wonder. He's showing up on the set for an ad that he's shooting about microwaves and how awesome they are, but he's also talking about how they're kind of unknown technology It might be shooting radiation into all of us. Do you get anything particular uh, from like all of this, like very specific historical cultural scene setting?
1: I just took it as the film needing to show Renee doing his job and how his job and the things he's fascinated by the the problems that he's trying to solve or work his mind around are all the same type of thing to him in terms of just, you know, the microwave, you know, uh, the soda, you know, this, the, the no campaign, they're all, they're all campaigns. They're all things that he has. they're all problems that he has to solve. And and, and I think that he gets a weird fulfillment out of out of that i mean it's all you know like like he, like it's a puzzle for him that that he get kind of like okay i can try to unlock what the, the the essence of this thing and and uh present it to the people in a way that you know is gonna gonna get the most buyers but he's gonna but uh, you know so i think you need that in the movie you, you need those those other you need to see him doing other selling other products in this movie to realize that he is appro- taking the same approach to uh the no campaign.
0: That's a really good point. We're selling democracy in in literally exactly the same terms that we're selling uh, soda.
2: Yeah, the film doesn't put too fine a point on this, but he's using ad techniques that are very much derived from American ad campaigns to undo a... Regime <laughs> whose, uh, you know, creation was, was, I think the kindest way you can put it is, it was the conditions for, for the Pinochet coup were, were certainly, uh, helped along by the Nixon administration, the CIA, and, and Pinochet was propped up by, you know, our government wasn't so open about this, but was propped up by the U.S. government for, for years. So there is, there is kind of a, a, a circularity to, to, uh, using the, you know, American tools to sell democracy to a country whose democracy was sort of, uh, you know, it was it was helped to collapse by America. And what what about this, Keith? Because like I, one thing I was kind of thinking of,
1: too, given the time period, it was just this this idea of uh, of the Soviet Union being kind of busted up by the power of consumerism. You know what I mean? Of just like mm-hmm. blue jeans and and you know of, of kind of, of of stoking people's interest in the freedom of you know consumer choice as as uh, darges puts it you know just kind of you know I, and then maybe that was kind of an influence too of just like the you know just the idea of of giving people access to this very this product that is going to make them happy there's there's a tremendous political power to it much more so than recounting the number of the disappeared and the and, and the tortured and the murdered
2: I also this is maybe a slightly different topic, but I also love the stretch. And I'm assuming, Tasha, maybe you can clear this up for me. But the the clips from the Yes campaign that are kind of mimicking or mocking mocking slash mimicking the the No campaign, it's kind of in the tradition of, of right wing humor just not working <laughs> too. You know, just <laughs> not really being able to, to get it right. And uh, I thought the the examples of that are, are, are pretty are pretty fun.
0: I mean, uh, effectively, from what I've read, I, like that's it. Just it's very much a historical thing. Is uh, the one of the reasons? So there were there were, there's a lot more that went into this election than this ad campaign. The ad campaign didn't decide it one way or the other, and that's one of the things that uh, Chilean critics were cross about is, like, how much it leaves out uh, about, you know, the efforts to get out the vote and the efforts for progressives to cooperate and compromise and, and all that stuff. But apparently, like, one of the reasons the ad campaign was successful and did get positive word of mouth was just... The the opposition just came across as so stodgy and so uh, you know they were shooting for traditionalism, but they came across as like anti-progress and uh, like overly traditional and, and unwilling to embrace as uh, Renee keeps telling us the future. So speaking of the future and and speaking of Renee, it, it just it was striking to me how little we know about his past, uh, particularly his wife who. One of the reasons I uh, stopped the film and started looking things up at one point was I was just so unclear on exactly what their relationship was meant to be. Apparently, there was a longer cut of the film at one point that had a lot more about their relationship. Apparently, they married very young because they grew up in a culture where it was just kind of unheard of to not be married, but she never wanted to be married. She is much more interested in like politics than particularly motherhood or, you know, being being part of a family or, or keeping a home. So, she's kind of the radical in the relationship and they split up, but they they can't get a divorce because that's also unheard of. And all of that is maybe subtext that you would get uh, if you were a Chilean uh, citizen watching this movie, but none of it's laid out for the audience.
2: There's also the question of his parents, who I, I gathered from context were politically to the left and had left the country, and and, to, and he'd returned, if if I'm not mistaken. It was that was sort of that. Was, I don't know if you found any more in your research about the specifics of that, or or if that's accurate.
0: Uh, not about his parents, no. I'm not sure what their place was in in the longer cut, if that delved into it. But the cut that we get is just very slim on details about his personal life, uh, about his backstory. And in the midst of all of this, uh, where people are, are bringing out their own family histories and their own histories with the regime and, and the damage it's done them, that seems like a very significant choice. So I, I'm just I'm curious how you engaged with kind of what he's what Lorraine is choosing to skim across or leave out entirely from this movie.
1: Uh, yeah, I have a hard time answering that question because, as you say, he skims out and leaves it. I mean, there, there's I've <laughs> um, <laughs> the, found a lot of that a lot of the sort of personal stuff around renee to be a little impoverished in terms of like uh, helping us understand him or or the movie it just it's almost like felt like almost like a half measure like the film could probably have done without it in a way you know and and uh, and it would have almost served the character a little bit better but um i don't know what do you what did you all think
0: i mean i guess that's my question is just did did you feel in need for more than you got in terms of who he is I, or yeah, that's, where he came I mean from
1: half measure. It's either you go in, you go all the way with it or you you don't, or you kind of drop it completely. I mean, you, you could make a, I, I don't think the film would hurt from being a little shorter than it is. I mean, his other films are a little shorter generally. Uh, again, I don't want to, I, I, I hate to be the, I'm not going to be the guy saying he should have cut this or anything like that. I'm not going to be that guy, but, but I, but I did seem like a little, I, I almost feel like the less we know about him, outside of his job the better
2: yeah i got to feel i understand why it was so slim i did i did feel like maybe i missed some details at some point but ultimately you know it all worked out it's it's, i think the film the film works oh yeah 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 fantastic film
0: we do kind of gloss across a, a bunch of different scenes not in the sense not in the usual film sense but i don't know i just i feel like there's a a whole sort of Subcultures, maybe, is uh, what I'm trying to get at. Like places and and moments and and movements that we just kind of sort of touch on in passing to let us know that they're there and kind of let us know how they're shaping all of this. But we just we don't have time for any kind of a deep dive. Was there any place that you wanted to linger a little more? Anybody that you wanted to know more about besides Renee? I don't know,
1: I, I wouldn't say necessarily know anything more about but I really do love the character of Lucho his uh, his colleague uh, and who ends up spearheading the Yes campaign again, you know, cut from the same cloth, both men who think about think about the, these things the same way uh, but uh, Lucho of course is put in a you know, in much more of a box because uh, he, you know, he, yeah, the problem with the dictatorship is that you kind of have to please the dictator all the time, and the dictator doesn't, doesn't necessarily know what's best in this in this case. And um, and so and so that that's interesting. And then the the conflicts that they have uh, during the movie and conversations they have, and then at the end, just kind of like it just seems like they're just folded back into the thing they were just doing before. And it's just I I, I don't know. It felt that felt very true to me, and and I think that was uh, I think it was. That was the, the 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 one character besides uh renee that who really kind of popped for me
2: you gotta sell that soap opera you gotta you gotta use the same tools to sell the soap opera that you're gonna use sell democracy yeah.
0: I read a really interesting essay about kind of the semiotics of this movie more than anything else, but it also kind of like delves into aspect of the the history and the storytelling and its relationship with media. And there's an aspect I want to bring out about it, particularly relating to the end of the movie. But before we get into it and it maybe colors your view. Uh, I'd be very curious for your thoughts on the the exact place where the movie ends.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think it's a little bit of more insight into that character. Uh, I almost feels like he played his part and was ready to go back to what he was doing before, and, and or if you want to put it even more in terms of the business, like this contract was up; it was time to move back mm-hmm. to another product.
1: Yeah, I mean, and that's exactly what happens. Yeah, it's like this is this kind of gets tucked into the portfolio, and he moves on. I mean that the people surrounding him. I mean, this is their lives. I mean, this this is this truly extraordinary political victory that that at least altered for to, to, altered to to a, a great extent a uh, a disastrous course of the country had taken, you know. But that's not his fight, really. <laughs> it, it, that's not the way he thinks
2: about it. So at the I think same it was time, I I, I, I I don't get the feeling he doesn't care. But I also feel like he feels like he has nothing else to contribute. Uh, he's done his part at this point.
1: Yeah, no, I mean that's true. It's, I mean, but but I'm kind of glad that the film doesn't make it like this huge conversion experience because mm-hmm. I I don't think that would have been true. I think to like, to the character to just be like, okay, I came in this like I came into this for potentially cynical reasons, but now I'm a true believer. Like I, I'm kind of glad that it didn't fully embrace an arc like that.
0: Yeah, it. I mean, that stood out for me as well. Is that you feel? F- for uh, some, some parts of the movie, at least, that Rene is a bit of an enigma, and I'm glad that the movie doesn't end with him kind of, like, dropping his caution and, and showing his, like, true inner humongous emotions or whatever. The thing that I want to read was published uh, in something that calls itself the Journal of Art and Politics, uh, just an an online publication. The article's title is Pablo Lorraine's No and the Aesthetics of Television, uh, written by Fabrizio Salento, who is a professor. I was just really struck by the end of this. Towards the end of the film, uh, Saavedra, which is Renee's last name, demonstrates a certain lack of passion for his country's future and does not join the cheering crowds in the streets of Santiago to celebrate the unprecedented victory to which he contributed much. On the contrary, he remains impassable and detached. This is a sign of the increasing disillusionment of the protagonist for his work, and of his awareness of the socio-political vacuum he helped to create. He's carrying his son, who just wants to nap on his shoulder, a sign that Saveda failed to transmit a sense of civil engagement to future generations. Through the use of a catchy tune and upbeat humor, the No campaign won, but its promises were based on a generic concept of happiness that had no equivalent in reality. For him, to join the crowd would mean to celebrate the moment in which political activism turned into marketing, approaching a Pacific, nonviolent revolution as just another visual artifact.
2: Mm, I don't know if I buy the stuff with uh, the reading of his, of uh, that moment with his kid, because I feel like this is the kid he's going to inherit in the, the country he's helped reshape. And I think that this is kind of how I read into that as well. I don't think it was quite as cynical as, as this reading, but perhaps I'm being overly optimistic.
1: I of the don't. reading i think is dead on though i i i i <laughs> like i like that reading i think that's what dargis's impression of renee was as well and I, and again it you know again it causes me to reflect on our current situation here it's just like are we really going to go into this next election year with a campaign? that is a form of marketing is, is doing what Renee might do is kind of reaching people in a way that might be most effective, but isn't actually touching on what's real and what's really important and what everyone, you know, civically should be aware of and alarmed by and engaged with like, that's a pretty, because that, that opens up all kinds of potential for, for tyranny down the line. Because if you, if, if, if it's just about who's going to bring you the most happiness or whatever, or it's just about, uh, you know, finding some sort of marketing angle, you know, of one kind or another to appeal to people, you're actually missing out on the important stuff and just kind of focusing on a lot of bullshit.
0: That said, I like while I really like that piece and the the thoughtfulness of the conclusion it comes to it, it felt a little like an overreach to me because in that moment, what I see is a man taking care of his child mm-hmm. you know a man prioritizing his child's needs over everything else and maybe he is moving on to the next thing maybe he is feeling a little disillusioned or feeling a little down because like it's complete it's over, but I, to me it's really just about. What's important to Renee is his son, which is something that we see over and over and over throughout the film, is maybe we can fill in all of the blanks that we don't know about him with his devotion to his child, and maybe it's all just about making a better future for his son, And once that future is secured, you know, to the degree that a non-binding vote on the government, which still at that point was very much in doubt in terms of what Pinochet would do with it, what kind of effect that was going to have on the country. I don't know. I I just, again, I just see a man looking after his child. But I guess to wrap up, uh, kind of springing out of that, like, this movie kept striking me with its moments of what? I thought were just very insightful and and true bits of cynicism, and yet I don't think it's a cynical movie. You know, it it has the underdog ending, which you can kind of type as a happy ending unless you want to read that last uh, moment as a moment of disillusion, which I'm not sure I do. But I mean, do you think that this is a a cynical movie? Do you think that it's an idealistic movie? Where do you put it on the spectrum?
2: perhaps about weaponizing cynicism toward ideologically pure ends, perhaps. Yeah, I mean, I
1: don't think the film gets, I, you know,
2: I mean, given Lorraine's career
1: and his obsessions, I don't think it's cynical. I think he really likes to, I think he has a very strong point of view. And then he also is fascinated by just the way things work, just the this, this system, how things work behind the scenes, how political dynamics play out. In that sense, I mean, I think I think his films are extremely engaged in, in the issues and have a strong point of view. And so it's hard, you know, I think it, yeah, I mean, maybe what Key said, it's me really, you know, it may be about cynicism, but it is, uh, it is itself. I don't think is a cynical film.
0: Well, I think everything that you just said about how Lorraine engages with systems is also going to be very true of the second film in this pairing. We'll be back to discuss that next week, and I think to delve into some of these ideas uh, even even deeper as Lorraine himself does. Uh, but in the meantime, we're going to take a break, and then it's time for feedback. <music> Now it's time for feedback. But before we get to it, we want to shout out Film Spotting, the Next Picture Show's mothership podcast hosted by Adam Kempinar and Josh Larson. As we record this, Adam and Josh just wrapped their fall film preview and gave us episodes on Risky Business's 40th anniversary and Midnight Run's 35th, which may be the first movie anniversary I've heard in decades. That doesn't make me feel just impossibly old. Has it really been only 35 years since Midnight Run?
1: Only thirty five. Oh no, that's making me feel old. I mean, goddamn, but <laughs> uh, uh, risky business at forty. Come on,
0: no. I, for somehow risky business at forty, it just seems mu- like a much, much more horrifying number than midnight run at thirty five. I don't know.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> I mean, I guess I do remember one coming. one coming out of five years before. <laughs> other but like <laughs> i don't know like uh that's that's a little tough. 35 i mean nice films though right and a lot of fun too I, um, I like both have. those films a lot yeah i i got a chance to write about uh, i don't know where it was for maybe for the guardian or something but i i think i wrote uh, maybe a 30th anniversary piece on on midnight run when it was appropriate uh, So I, and oh my gosh i had so much fun and every single time i have trees and eggs which is kind of common there's a place I, I i i that is i get a chorizo skillet and uh i cannot help but think of uh charles groden talking about chorizo and eggs so cheers to that it's front of the podcast alan seppenwald's favorite film too it, it <laughs> truly is
0: when are we gonna have alan in here maybe we we yeah, yeah. If, we,
1: we, if we ever do midnight runner digs down we'll, we'll get him in here <laughs>
0: Oh, maybe we should start doing uh, anniversary shows, Uh, but not right now. Instead, right now, we're going to have a little feedback. We have a uh, throwback letter from Paul in Houston, taking me to task for griping about the animal afterlife in Guardians of the Galaxy 3. Uh, Scott, given how much you love it when people take me to task, um, can you read this one for us?
1: Oh, absolutely. Paul, buddy welcome aboard uh <laughs> so paul paul writes i'm going to well actually tasha uh by noting that we have seen three versions of the afterlife in the mcu the ancestral planes three versions in black panther the Duat in moon knight and valhalla in thor love and thunder man oh man as such uh, gun is hardly going into uncharted mcu territory with rocket and lila for the rocket flashback sequences being separate pieces, that makes no sense in terms of plotting. But as a way to distribute the emotional impact of the revelations, I can't fault Gunn for letting me have recovery time between each new scene. Tasha, come on now. I, I, I,
0: I've been well <laughs> actually I have nothing quite to contribute thoroughly. to this.
1: All right. Yeah. You feel owned here? <laughs>
0: no, I feel completely unowned. Um, Here is my thing. If we if we want to to dig into it, uh, first of all, I, I think accusing the MCU of consistency is not necessarily something that I would do. Uh, but I mean, looking at these three examples, the Duat Moon Knight is a great big question for me because we have no idea how much of Moon Knight is either really canon or really real, given how much... Much of that show is about the inside of a mentally ill character's head, and a lot of like very subjective things going on inside of it. The ancestral planes. (laughs) Moon Knight.
2: So (laughs) proud of you! Absolutely blown away.
1: (laughs) I'm I'm blown away that we have we have two people here, Paul and Tasha, who have watched all of Moon Knight.
0: (laughs) Uh, Has Paul watched all of it? We don't know the ancestral plane in black panther is just very deeply built into the the lore in the background and i think that it's the best argument for a an afterlife in the mcu and possibly combined with Moon Knight, the best argument that there are a whole bunch of different afterlives and they mean different things. Valhalla, I just don't know if I buy as an example of anything because it's they, they veered off into that weird area of, yeah, these are gods, but we don't mean gods. We mean aliens and the aliens believe... Certain things happen when you die. I, like I, I don't, I don't know that it's true. I don't know that it's meaningful. I certainly don't know if it's consistent with what. What cheesed me off a little bit about the animal afterlife in Guardians is that it's so vague. Like all three of these examples, especially the duat, are very complicated, like rich ideas, either built out of mythology or. A folklore, you know, they're, they're meaningful. They're grounded in the reality of like human belief in history. The animal afterlife in guardians is a, a glowing place where somebody gets to hang out with his dead bestie entirely for emotional reasons. And I just, I just don't buy it. I, I don't buy it as an emotional beat. I don't buy it as an inherent and interesting part of MCU lore. However, I have been argued down that uh, who knows maybe Rocket's just having a near death hallucination, and I'm fine with that. Damn. Come I'm on, guys, you're deeply invested in the in the MCU and its consistency and veracity. Let's hear the big arguments. I sure you. I, I mean, I, I one thing I've
2: admired about the MCU is how much it mirrors the Marvel Comics universe, including having about 18 different working mythologies uh that that all to contradict one another but they just seem to live side by side and i think i was going to accept that there are many different afterlives uh and that's fine or maybe everyone's listening uh maybe it's all like a near-death experience
0: I just, I feel like Paul was sitting at a table marked, uh, the animal afterlife fits into the MCU changed my mind. And I pulled up a chair and sat right down and you guys are just, oh dear God, stay away
2: from those two. I think the (laughs) correct answer should be, uh, Paul, you're correct. And we'll send you your no prize.
0: (laughs) Uh, I've got a no envelope right here for us to ship that out with. We always appreciate when our listeners share their thoughts and their recommendations. If you feel so inclined, we can feature your response on a future episode. To reach us, you can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. That's it for this episode of The Next Picture Show. In our next episode, we'll talk about El Conde, which gives Pinochet himself a lot more agency and centrality than No does, sort of. I mean, it also turns him into an ancient cranky vampire who lives on hearts, which he mulches in blenders. We'll get into all of that next week. For ad-free versions of the podcast and extra content, find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash Show. You can find us at NextPictureShow.net and on Twitter at NextPicturePod. Hey, if you're on Blue Sky, uh, we're there also at NextPictureShow. And if you're not on Blue Sky yet and you want an invitation, uh, hit me up uh, casually on Twitter. I've got a bunch of them. About all of us here do at this point. Yeah, i got a couple. I have 13 of
1: them. So please <laughs> hit me up. I, just, I want to get rid of them.
0: <laughs> yeah, just pocus. I mean, they, they keep generating. And we're all having conversations over there that uh, are just a lot... Calmer than the conversations that we had been having on Twitter. Until next week, does anybody know if they ever fixed that problem with microwaves and radiation? I might have to vote no on my household microwave.